Good morning. Didn't you love that dedication a few minutes ago? And at least for me, I love being involved in a faith community because you get to see the journey. You get to see people growing week by week, year by year, month by month, and welcome people back. And so uh, get as close as you can because you get to see God working in everybody else's lives. Who doesn't love Friday? Now, don't raise your hand. You might be here. But I love Friday. So I uh, came up with something from Silver Fox Productions, um, what I'm going to call Fast Break Friday. You got a card when you came in? Don't throw it away. What we're going to do, what I'm going to do, and Janine's going to be involved too, we're going to pray over these things. But on Friday, if you sign up by texting there, and this is one word, text Fast Break, very simply, it's probably 3 o'clock on Friday, right ready for the weekend, I'm going to send you one short scripture verse, not a paragraph, one fast break like an espresso coffee, and maybe one statement at the end as an encouragement, and you're on your own. So uh, I think that's a cool thing because you can get connected, and we want us all to be connected in a faith community. Be aware, this isn't going to be a group thing where you're going to get all of a sudden your cell phone blasting off with everybody responding. You can respond to me, Janine and I, but you can't, nor will we have people responding back with each other, which will just light up your cell phone. So before you leave church, if you want to be involved, I'd love to connect with you that way. Something simple, a blast for Friday afternoon. So uh, sign up, don't just throw it away. Glad to be here today, and we're talking about, for me, one of the most exciting psalms that changed my life. You know, yesterday I was pulling into a gas station, pulling in, and gas is expensive now, isn't it? But the guy who was pumping had a New York Yankees hat on and still had that metallic emblem you get that makes it, like, very official. And I started talking, and I said, you know, how are you doing, and how's your week been? And he said, I haven't really had a good week. Like, why? He said, well, I cannot figure out. I got a question. I can't figure out why the Yankees have so many people on the disabled list. What's wrong with them? And we started to talk a little bit, and I realized pretty quickly this was a significant question in his life. <laughs> have you thought about questions lately? What are the most significant questions of your life or my life? That's what Psalm 139 is going to answer. There was a guy named Voltaire, a little history, a guy named Voltaire, and he made kind of an interesting statement. He said, don't gauge or don't judge a person based on the answers to any question they have. Evaluate them on the quality of their questions. A lot of people can come up with answers, but having a probing question is something entirely different because probing questions will bring you to places that common questions may not get you. This guy, Albert Einstein, kind of smart, wasn't he? So this Albert Einstein guy had, was asked, what is the most important question of the universe? It wasn't the Yankees. And it surprised me because I thought he'd talk about relativity. But instead he said this, for him, the most important question in the universe that every one of us have to answer is, is simply this. Is the universe a friendly place? Well, that kind of surprised me. You know, because I thought he'd talk about something more scientific than that. But, you know, there is an answer to that, and I kind of have a feeling he didn't see the world and the universe as a friendly place. I think the world necessarily and the universe isn't such a friendly place. Scripture in one of these great 40 by 40s is going to show us that the world kind of fell. The whole universe went into kind of crazy mode because of things that happened. The local church is friendly, 
But crazy mode happened out there. There was another guy, and he started writing. He's kind of a, a famous blogger, and he talked about a guy named Mark Manson, kind of a blogger out there. And, and this is what he said in terms of that answer to the question, what's the big question of life? Mark Twain, the Yankees, this is what he says. Everybody wants to feel good. Everybody wants to live a carefree, happy, and easy life. To fall in love and have great relationships, to look perfect, to make money, be popular, be, be well-respected, admired, and a total guy who can walk into a room and part the Red Sea when you walk in. And here's his question. Am I willing to go through the pain to get there? Well, I don't know about you. I don't think I really want to get there. Do I really want to part the Red Sea when I walk into a room? Do I really want to be perfect? Well, the Lord wants us to be perfect, but I've got a long way to go. Money isn't all that important to me at all. Being popular, well-respected. So I'm not even on that journey to create enough pain in my life to somehow get these kind of attitudes going. Imagine he walks into a room, 30 years of his life, all geared up to be able to part the Red Sea, and the Red Sea at a party parted, and then what? Wow. They're going to put that on my tombstone? Not that exciting. Harvard Divinity or Harvard uh, Business School came up with, I think, a better question to the big question of life, and I hope you have one because I'm going to ask you. And, and they sort of came up with something like this. Why are we here? I think that's a lot better than even is the universe a friendly place. I care about the Yankees. I care about the Mets too. But I'm not sure that that captures the biggest questions of life. But if you notice in this 40 by 40, and I look for things in a faith community, the connection, I didn't try to connect this with what John was talking about weeks ago in our talks. But if you remember, Elijah was up on the mountain, and John told us two weeks in a row, hey, this is important. God asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And now Harvard, not a shallow place, says this is the most important question of life. What are we doing here? I don't know about you, but that got a hold of my heart. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about how I kind of came to faith from an atheist background. But one of the things that was moving in that was a question I had still in school. And, and I just said this, all these science classes are telling me that everything in the universe has a purpose. And if it doesn't have a purpose, it's a dead end, and it just goes, gone. But then I came back and I said, what's the purpose of life? What's the purpose of the universe itself? Why would the universe just go on its own, expending all of this energy over how many ever years it's been here, and then at that time, all of a sudden, it makes no purpose and no sense. So for me, the big question was this. Why is the universe here? And I realized there had to be a purpose. And it led me to realize if I even listened to science, there had to be a purpose to that universe besides dissipation, and God existed. So as I came to faith, and by the way, the second greatest question I ever had is, Janine, will you marry me? But let me tell you the first one, and she said yes, by the way. And the first one, and I'm really happy about that, the first one w was this. God, you exist, but do you really have time for me? 
mean, you've walked and I've walked with Jesus. We've walked with God for a bit. And sometimes it seems like he's there on time and sometimes you think he's just leaving you there by yourself and, and maybe you reach out and you sort of say, I think I'm just a number to you and does anybody know I'm here today? And there's an answer for that. There's a reason why God does that. If you're like me, you say, where are you? Why are some of the painful times in life seemingly as if you're standing back a little bit? Well, you know, one of the things that you read in these 40 chapters is that God really has no need to advertise himself such as what we see in Times Square. He doesn't write on the moon, hi, it's me, God, because people would be able to explain it away. We explain everything away. We try to. But what he does is he's very, very subtle, and he keeps us seeking and searching. There was a guy in Narcotics Anonymous in my past church. He gave me, I think, probably the most theological thought I'd heard in 30 years. He said this, I follow a higher power. I, f I follow Jesus. I follow a higher power who makes miracles look like coincidences, and then he tells people, don't tell anybody I did this. That's his nature. And so we're talking about a God who hides at some level. But as he hides, he also reveals himself. And Psalm 139 is going to take us right in there today. So if you would be there, it's up on the screen, 139. There's literally four sections. I'm not going to go through all four. I'm going to go through three. But this changed my life because if this is true, I have to ponder it and begin to see the impact that it can have on my life. David writes this. This is the David, David that, that John's been talking about at 17 and at 47. We picked him up at 57. That's why you want to keep coming to get this. And now this David, he writes this, and he shoves it over to his worship director, the director of music, and says, hey, look, you know, God inspired this. Let's start singing this. But what does he say? Let me read it with you. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. In that first verse, it captures everything else that will be seen in that psalm. And there are three words in there that are used over and over in this psalm. The first one is the word you. It occurs 24 times in this psalm. That's a lot. The second one is me. It occurs even more, 31 times. So in Jersey, it's kind of like, this is about you and me. This is about you and me. This whole psalm is about you and me. And then the third word that is, again, the third most popular verbs, verb word in this is the word know, which occurs seven times. And that word know is not to just know facts. It's not to know science. It's not to just know this and that and who's ahead and what poll and what happened in the draft the other night. It's a knowledge that's experiential, it's relational, it's as deep as the Hebrew language goes, and it's the word that we see in the parlance of our culture in an urban dictionary, it's yada, yada, yada. You know where that phrase comes from? Yeah, it was on a sitcom years ago, but the word is actually Jewish, it's actually Yiddish, yada is the word for no. And so today we're going to recapture something It means, I know, I know, I know, to God knows something about me. So let's see what this means. God, you have searched me and you know me. What that means is David is saying that God searches my soul, 
searches my brain. He knows the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. And guess what? He stays. We could get upset with somebody and have road rage. Someone get a road rage against us. We don't like that person calling in front of us and making a turn. We can write them off at work, write them off in our life. But God says, I know everything about you, David. I know the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've searched it all, and I'm sticking here with you. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise. That tells me that God's eye is always on us. Even when we walk into that back room. He sees our rising and our sitting down. He says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Well, I'm glad that my thoughts aren't all up on the screen today. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, sometimes they're just like the movie Ugly. God says, you know something? I perceive it, and guess what? I still love you. I love you so much that none of that pushes me away from you. That doesn't mean you want to dwell and stink in it but I know everything about you. So when you get this idea, oh my gosh, I'm going to just embarrass God because of my thoughts, I'm just going to run away, I'm going to go do something else, forget about it. We'll find out wherever you run to, he already catches up with you. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. You know, you get married, you find out about people's ways. I've been married 42 wonderful years. I try to be as good a husband as I can, but I fail. Some remember those seven things from the other night, Friday night? I love what John said as well, because I have those things. We all have that stuff. The Lord perceives it, he knows it, yet he sticks with us. He says, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Does that mean that every word is preordained? No, it just means he knows about it. And so when I start to ponder this, I'm talking about a being in the universe who was closer to me than the person who was sitting next to you. I think it'd be really hard to be in my family as an atheist family because an atheist says there is no God. And simply, I always, I always ask, well, how, how far off the planet have you been? Nine, eight miles in an airplane? Have you looked around the moon? Have you... Looked around Saturn? Have you, have you gotten to the reaches of the gallery and you're absolutely dead sure there's nobody out there? Yeah, no. Imagine being in a position where we have to discount every miracle, every supernatural experience, every blessing like we saw today of every culture and every generation and every age and every century all over the world. Because if you believe that, you have to discount them all. You can't leave one. If you leave one, then you've just left open the reality there's a God. It's very tough. He says this, he says, you hem me in behind me and before me. You have laid your hand on me. So God perceives the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows my ways better than my wife knows my ways, better than I know my ways. And yet David says, you still put your hand on me. I'm, I'm so glad we did that dedication, John. John said, and he used the word, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay my hand on him. And a lot of times that word in our culture, it just means, I'm going to get them. I laid my hands on them, or they laid their hands on me. Boom, 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 boom. But here, it's not saying God's laid his hand on you because he's a tough God. 
he laid his hand on you and on me, just like John laid his hand upon the little boy, Jax. And so when we think about it, how does this God, even before we knew him, lay his hand upon us and bless us as John blessed that young boy? He says, you hemmed me in. You hemmed me in behind and before so that I don't go off a cliff in life. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to obtain. What if I really, in the big picture of my world, in a world in which sometimes we ask, is God too busy for us? Then we find the answer, no. In fact, he is closer to you than the person sitting next to you always at all times, and he has sought you. Well, then we jump into the second section here, which is like going from first gear to second gear. So, so buckle up. Whoa. Where can I go from your spirit? I don't want to go to church today. Where can I go? I don't want to get too close to God. There was a time in my life when people invited me to church. I didn't want to go to church because I knew in my heart that God was there. I was like running. Where can I go from your spirit where can I flee from your presence? You ever just want to run? Just run away from our responsibilities. Maybe run away from real love. Run away from God. Get the feeling in your soul because something happened when you were a kid that you were destined to have a bad life. So someone, God, who comes in, who's talking about genuine love, is just, you know, I don't know if I want genuine love. I want to keep repeating a cycle where in that cycle, I am the person who is not good. Where can I flee? Sometimes we want to flee our jobs. We want to flee our towns. We want to flee the responsibilities. Oh, if I could just break free from all those things, life would be great goes on and says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sandy Hook, you're there. I just said that. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, I wake up early. Our cat's like waking us up at six in the morning, so it's like the dawn. If I wake up with my cat at the dawn, you're still with me. I didn't beat you to waking up. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Even when I run, even when I'm fast track out of my responsibilities, and even when I'm trying to get rid of this one who loves me with a genuine love for whatever reason, when I go, you didn't say, you're a runner, I'm out of here. You stayed with me find out here if I settle on the far side of the sea even your hand will guide me your right hand will hold me fast surely if I say darkness will hide me and the light become night around me even the darkness will not be dark to you the night will shine like the day the darkness is as light to you basically what he's saying here I can't run from God I kind of run right into him a little bit of history World War II 
We celebrated that in a sense by talking at Good Friday and Easter about victory. A generation fought a huge war, liberated people in almost every hemisphere, came back and didn't tell a lot about their war stories because they were tough. And what they saw would forever change their lives. Airplane fighters that came back couldn't take driving around in a sedan or in a wagon that was just being invented, so they, they took the motorcycles. Triumphs and Harleys and Indians, and they created the one percenters. And they drove in packs. It was very similar to the war. War changed a lot of stuff. So coming into the 50s, in the happy days of the 1950s, there was kind of like two tectonic plates, tectonic plates that were just with each other and rubbing against each other. Those folks that had experienced the 50s, and suddenly you say, is this important today? Because it's influenced today as importantly, you just have to know where it came from. Suddenly in the 50s, something erupted. There was a guy named Jack Kerouac. Jack Kerouac wrote a book called On the Road. This guy was so influential. You say, I don't even know these musicians today. That's okay. They've influenced the musicians that you're listening to, no matter what genre of music you may be listening to. This guy, Jack Kerouac, erupted out in New York City, created what was called the Beats. Now there's a revival of the Beats. So when you see movies being published or new stuff that's being streamed in 2014, 15, 16, it's about the Beats. This guy started it. It was a guy in New York in Greenwich Village who just decided, very simply, I don't see anything around here I want to live for, so I'm going to hit the road. So he hit the road with a friend, and what he decided was whatever was on the horizon is going to be better than what he has right now, even though he grew up with some understanding of, of who Jesus was. Hit the road with his friend and decided that what life really amounted to was to just build up as many experiences as you possibly can have that are wild and crazy and nonsensical and to involve as many people as possible. These are the people he influenced. Number one, Bob Dylan. Have you ever heard of Bob Dylan? Incredibly influenced by Jack Kerouac. The Beatles. Have you ever heard of the Beatles? How about Patti Smith a little bit later? Tom Waits, the Grateful Dead, said there would be no Grateful Dead if it wasn't for Jack Kerouac. The Doors, uh, so many, many people. When you look at Forrest Gump, the idea of where he's just walking down that road to nowhere with all the people behind him and then he stops and walks. It's just a shadow or like a reflection of what was going on in Jack Kerouac's world. He basically made these kind of statements to people. He said simply that, you know, life today where you are is going to be boring. I need five wheels in my life. I need a wheel to grip with my hands and I need four on the floor four on the road, a full tank of gas, and off I go. He said, I don't really have anything to share with anyone except my confusion. But this person created the beat movement, what we call beats, was a progenitor of all the 60s. And when you look at most music, you can go back to their own Bruce Springsteen when he, he has that song, Racing in the Streets, or the other one, Born to Run. Guess where Born to Run came to when Bruce Springsteen talks about Kerouac in interviews. This guy influenced everything. What was his heart? His heart was to experience the life maybe that that earlier blogger talked about, to somehow be perfect, to somehow rent the Red Sea, 
to go and to try everything you can try with drugs, everything you can try with whatever substance to experience it all. And that he did. He created this movement with jazz, all this good stuff, and a lot of stuff's good. The 50s had to have a shift, and it had that shift. He just happened to be the guy that stood up and created that earthquake that we call that day. At 47 years of age, he wound up in a place in California. His body completely racked, falling apart, hemorrhaging internally because of the excesses of that life. He hung out with a friend at Big Sur thinking that California was the great answer to everything, everything in his life. And this is what we read. In that shack surrounded by cliffs and rock, Kerouac is visited by sheer terror. Years of drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and losses resulted in a nervous breakdown. And sitting on the edge of America, he's pushed to the edge of insanity. Years later, his, his aunt had suggested telling him that the dangers of just hitting the road were going to be extreme. Kerouac says, Ma was right. It was all about to drive me mad, and now it's done. You see, when we hear about Kerouac, we don't hear the rest of the story, and it's going to have a great ending. No longer free on the road, but now enclosed within the walls of his shack because his body was falling apart. Kerouac, in desperation, seemingly losing his mind, writes, I'm crying. I'm not even human anymore. I'll never be safe anywhere. He says voices began to rush through his head in languages that he couldn't understand. Kerouac, at his utter limit, in panic, exclaims, the evil one, the evil one's trying to come to me tonight. Tonight's the night. And with a jolt, at that moment, in that shack, in a guy who clearly impacted philosophy in America for 50 years, in that moment came a vision. And he writes this, which you'll won't hear about publicly. Quote, suddenly, as clear as anything I have ever seen in my life, I see the cross. At the end of the road, he says, was the cross. He had a sense returned home to a truth that he knew in his youth. He is now back kneeling before a cross of his childhood. And this is what he says. In this vision at that moment with voices in his head, he says, I see erupting into my vision this cross. He says, it's silent. It's not yelling. It stays and lingers a long time. He says, my heart now goes out to it. My whole body, I want it to fade into it. I hold out my arms to be taken away to it. Kerouac, the broken hipster has, and fallen literary star, immersed in the reality of everything that he has done in a cold sweat, wonders what's happening. He says, my eyes filled with tears as at that moment, despite all I've done in the emptiness, the cross is manifested to me. He says, and I quote, blessed relief has come to me just that one minute. Everything is washed away. I'm normal again. That's 
That's the story of the guy who pushed our culture for 50 years and still influences almost so much of what we see. But you know the beautiful thing of that story? God knew that Kerouac would do that all along. And despite the tens and maybe hundreds of thousands of people that he influenced, at the end of his journey was the love of God. The end of what he was seeking was what he never thought he'd find, and that is the love of a heavenly father. He says, Jack, are you done? There's nowhere to run, and I love you now as I've loved you ever before. If there's hope for Jack, there's hope for me. There's hope for you. There's hope for whatever you're in. Isn't it easy to run? I run from God. I run from His Spirit. I run from myself. I run from the memories. I run from the possibilities. I run from the things that went wrong, and I run from the things that went right. All I need are five wheels, fill up the gas tank, wherever I go, I just want to get out. I want to be free. And then that freedom becomes a trap. And as the psalmist David says, and he knew it, the further you run from God, the crazy thing is, at the end of the journey, with the sea breeze and the salt air, you run right into God anyway. And probably he says like he said to Elijah, hey, Jack, what are you doing here? And he shows him the cross. You know what I need to do? Sometimes I need to just take the gear out of drive. Park it. Turn the engine off. Get out of the car that I'm escaping, whatever I'm escaping in. And just say, you know, God, you love me so much, I can't run. It's easy to run, isn't it? Troubles, there's just nowhere to go. The only one in the universe who loves you with a love that even no human being can love, it's God. Really quickly, next minute, I'm just going to read the, the third part of this. Look at this. This is so cool. Gear three, boom, boom, boom. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Whether you're six foot two or two foot six, doesn't make any difference. God knit us together. We're the ones that don't like ourselves so often, but he says, I love you. I knit you together. I praise you, God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. By the way, Kerouac, for the next three years of his life till he died, lived for Jesus. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Do you know God was seemingly excited for all those weeks and months until we would be born? And we look in the mirror on Monday, we don't even like being alive. And God says, I was excited from eternity that you were going to be born. 
You're my creation. I signed the name of it. I did this. Sign God. All the days ordained for me were, were written in your book. I have a purpose and a plan in my life. Before any one of them came to be, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How fast are some of them? Were I to count them, they'd outnumber the grains of the sand. And here's the kicker at the end of it. He says, and when I awake, you're still there. There's a lot of stuff the night before we're glad morning came. Every day is a new day. Maybe you had a great dinner in the city. Maybe you had a great party, whatever. Draft party, whatever it is. Next morning comes, you can't feel the food that much. It's a different day. But David says the most amazing thing about this is when I give my life and I allow you to be the God who loves me, he said I wake up on the next morning, it didn't go away. And the reason it never goes away is because he never goes away. He's got a bigger grip on me than I have on him. And you know something so amazing? He loves us. Despite it all. Despite the wrecks we make. Despite the stuff we say. Despite all that, and if the band would come up, despite all those things, he still loves me. And I can run and I can fill my gas tank, and I can hit the accelerator and hope to find a place that I can be removed from that. And then I just wind up running right into him. Say, hey, I'm here, I beat you here. It kind of reminds me, and I close with this, the movie Forrest Gump. His little boy is going to school. If you see the movie, you see it again. And Forrest says, I'll be here when you get off the bus. And the bus goes, and you just get the feeling that Forrest Gump sat there the whole time until the bus came back. That's the love of the Father. That's the love of the Father for you and for me. Let's celebrate the God who has that reckless love we sang about this morning.
my life. There's nothing that more quickly stops my running. And hearing that little whisper at night. Mendham community on journey together. Let's listen tonight, today, to that gentle whisper. Because it's there. And he loves you. That's one of the biggest chapters. 139. Have a great day.